Welcome to the Patricia Raskin Show, the program that helps you turn obstacles into opportunities, challenges into solutions, and find answers to tough questions. And now, the award-winning powerhouse voice of radio. Here's your host, Patricia Raskin. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome. Welcome to the Patricia Raskin Show, right here on voiceamerica.com, the show that really helps you turn your obstacles into opportunities and We bring the best of the best to you, and we're in our 19th year, so that's very exciting. Um, Today, we're going to talk about a very timely topic. Um, I usually don't talk about these topics, but I think it's so timely and very important. I'm talking to Renee Nake Jefferson and Hannah Brenner Johnson. They are the authors of the book Shortlisted, Women in the Shadows of the Supreme Court. And Renee uh, Nate Jefferson is a professor of law and holds the Joanne and Larry Doherty Chair in Legal Ethics at the University of Houston Law Center. And Hannah Brenner Johnson is the Vice Dean for Academic and Student Affairs and an Associate Professor of Law at California Western School of Law in San Diego. And we're, we're talking about... Um, It really tells the largely forgotten stories of nine extraordinary women who broke through barriers and endured routine indignities to build influential legal careers and advance the ranks of women in state and federal courts, culminating with their name on presidential lists to create the appearance of diversity. So welcome, um, Renee, and welcome, Hannah. Okay. Thank you. Um, Thank you so much. How did you... You're welcome. And you can, you know, either one, I'll get to know your voices as you talk a little more. But um, how did you both get together? You're both in different parts of the country to write this and why? Well, it's true. We are uh, on opposite coast now. But Hannah, do you want to talk about how this project started? Sure. Um, It will require us to take uh, a step back in time, about a decade when Renee and I actually were colleagues together at the same institution. We were at Michigan State University College of Law. I was a new professor there and didn't know many people. This was back in 2009, 2010. And this was a very um, important time in our nation's history as it relates to the Supreme Court because President Obama was faced in the span of that year with two vacancies on the U.S. Supreme Court. And because we're law professors and legal scholars, we were, of course, um, absorbing all of the media coverage that was occurring around um, the vacancies that were um, that were being filled by not just one, but ultimately um, two women. And we noted to each other in our hallway conversations and some of the first um, preliminary times we had to connect with each other, how the media was focusing on the two women that Obama ultimately selected for the court, um, Elena Kagan and Sonia Sotomayor, the media's coverage was not just about their professional credentials, but it focused on things that, from our perspective, mattered very little. Um, There was a lot of commentary about both of them, the fact that they didn't have children, um, that they were single. There was speculation about their sexuality, lots of commentary about their appearance. Um, Mm. In fact, uh, both, both women ended up wearing basically the same blazer to their Senate confirmation hearings and uh, an online blog made a big deal out of who looked better in the blazer. And so mm-hmm. we were we were a bit horrified um, with what we thought of as very sexist and gendered media coverage. And we decided that we would use our power as academics to conduct a study rather than just rely on what we perceived as anecdotes. Mm-hmm. We wanted to test empirically whether there in fact was coverage that was really gendered about nominees to the U.S. Supreme Court. And Mm. so through this study, which resulted in us reading through about 4,000 newspaper articles published in the Washington Post and the New York Times, we stumbled upon a true gem of an article that really set us on the path to write this book. Renee, do you want to talk about that article? Mm. Amazing. Sure, yes. 4,000 articles. That's a lot of articles. (laughs) Well, we, we had a, we had a great team of research assistants who were helping us as well. But we we each read them all, um, and and in the midst of them, as Hannah mentioned, there was one that really stood out. Uh, it was written in 1971. Uh, it was about the shortlist that President Nixon had put together. He faced two vacancies for the Supreme Court back then. Um, ultimately, they were filled by 
William Rehnquist and Lewis Powell. But his shortlist, interestingly, it had uh, the names of two women on it. It was a shortlist of six that had been leaked to the media. The New York Times was reporting about it. One of the women, Mildred Lilly, it described as having no children and maintaining her bathing beauty figure even in her 50s, which, of course, mm-hmm. fit into our media studies thesis. But that's <laughs> not actually why we were that's not why we were so interested in it. We were actually curious about, well, who's Mildred Lilly? And how is she on this Supreme Court shortlist? And there was another woman uh, also in the article reported Sylvia Bacon. And we wondered, well, who, who are these women? How have we never heard of them before in an American mm. history class or even in a, a law and feminism class as law students. It, it, as it, it turned out, they were both judges. Mildred Lilly was a judge in California and Sylvia Bacon in Washington, D.C., both highly qualified, sufficiently credentialed women that they had risen to the level of being considered for a seat on the nation's highest court. And that was really what led to this book. Because we started to ask more questions, like how many other women were shortlisted before Sandra Day O'Connor? What we we had always heard, uh, you know, that story, which of course deserved to be told. She was the first woman on the U.S. Supreme Court and an extraordinary justice. But as it turns out, the presence of women on the U.S. Supreme Court, that story doesn't begin with Sandra Day O'Connor. It actually begins decades before. And we uh, set out to find the answer, how many women had been shortlisted before O'Connor. And we, we dug through presidential archives across the country. And it turns out the answer to that is that nine women were officially placed on president's shortlists in the decades before Sandra Day O'Connor became the nation's mm. first woman on the court in 1981. And then, of course, then she was followed by Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Correct. Yes, that's correct. It took about a decade for um, another, even though there were lots of vacancies. um, In fact, Reagan, who put O'Connor on the Supreme Court, that was his campaign promise, and he delivered. He had more vacancies. He could have put more women on the court, and there were plenty who were qualified. He chose not to do so. Um, But eventually, in in 1993, President Clinton did uh, appoint Ruth Bader Ginsburg to the U.S. Supreme Court, the second woman. So here's my question. I'm going to fast forward. Now, I want to say that this show is evergreen, meaning that people may listen in two or three or four years. And right now we're in the middle of a pandemic in 2020. We're also in the middle of an election that's about to happen. And we're also in the middle of a Supreme Court um, issue where there has been a woman who has been, uh, I don't know if you, is, is it the word nominated or is it suggested or to the Supreme nominated. Court? Nominated. 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 So, yeah. Right. So you would you might think, well, gee, look how far we've come because, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg certainly was a woman. Then we had Sotomayor. Correct. But um, yes. but now. All right. But now we now have Amy Coney Barrett, who is, again, I'm, I'm, I'm a little head because of where we are in our time sequence. But she's been nominated. And now, although you might say, well, you know, haven't we arrived? We now have another woman. Um, maybe not so. So maybe you want to talk about that because this is a specific kind of case. Can you talk well, about a, that? A couple of thoughts I'll, I'll say, and then Hannah, you might have more you want to weigh in on. But first of all, I mean, it, it's true. It is a matter of progress that uh, we may soon have five women who will have become Supreme Court justices in this country. But Let's, let's make no mistake about it. Just because five women, we've had four, we may have a fifth soon. She may be confirmed. We'll see. Uh, that, that's still like less than 4% of the justices who have sat on the Supreme Court. The overwhelming majority have been men. And we would have to have entire courts of all nine women for decades to bring things into equal numbers in terms of men versus women sitting on the court. So that's, that's one observation. It is a measure of progress, but there's also so much more to be done because women enter the legal profession in numbers equal to men and have for decades, mm-hmm. but we don't see them in positions of power, whether it's on the Supreme Court or in other aspects of the, the legal profession. Or frankly, this is, I imagine, something that resonates to any, with any of your listeners. It's a, a problem across all professions that women don't reflect the diversity of the, the public we serve. Now, 
it also is an interesting point I think you're making in that just because a woman will uh, hold a seat on the Supreme Court doesn't mean she's going to necessarily ascribe to a certain set of views. And this is something that we definitely saw in our cohort of nine women that we discovered in our shortlisted book. These women, going all the way back to the 1930s, some of them were real activists in women, women's rights efforts. One was a, a suffragist who campaigned for the right for women to vote. Um, others were supporters and champions of the Equal Rights Amendment, but some were not. In fact, one lobbied actively against it. And so uh, I think that it's important to note that just because a woman is uh, in a position of leadership or power doesn't mean she's necessarily going to support feminist views or mm-hmm. uh, equal rights for women. Similarly, just right. because a man holds a seat doesn't mean he's not going to champion the rights for right. women. And, and just as another point of history on that, um, you know, a topic that is so political right now uh, is, is, is abortion. And I would just remind the history for, for everyone that um, abortion, Roe v. Wade, such a controversial case even today, was decided by a court of all men, and it wasn't a close decision. It was seven to two, uh, affording that that right to women. But so, I think it's it's a, a really important point that you're making that that it's not just about the diversity in terms of how many men or how many women are sitting on the court, That's but also right. we want a diversity of viewpoints. Right, and and in this case, and I don't think I'm speaking out of turn here. This woman has been nominated specifically for her views. If she didn't have those views, she would not be the one chosen. That's what I'm seeing. Any comments about that? Well, I, oh, I, I'm just... Yeah. Go ahead, Anna. <laughs> did, um, I, did I stop you, you know, cold? I, Was that too strong of a no. statement? <laughs> well, I mean, it, I think that it, um, it, it makes me think about one of, well, actually all of the women that we profile in the book. And remember, our book is about women who never made it onto the court, who who were literally in the shadows um, uh, and, and could have been incredibly qualified jurists. But they were all very, very complex. Um, I think it's really important um, to keep in mind that, you know, it's impossible for one woman to represent the perspectives of all women. And certainly, mm-hmm. even with a cohort of nine shortlisted women, um, you know, they run the gamut in terms of their perspectives and their views, as Renee alluded to a few moments earlier. But I think about one of the women in our study um, who I think I'm reminded of her in particular, given what's happening in our current political context with the um, the nomination of Amy Coney the Supreme Court. And the woman in our study who I think about is a a woman named Susie Sharp. Um, Now, Susie Sharp was a judge. Um, She was a chief justice on the North Carolina Supreme Court. She was a very, very complex woman. She believed that a woman could either be at home as a wife and a mother, or she could be a professional, as she was. Um, She never married. Um, She was a a lawyer and a judge throughout her entire career. the interesting thing about Judge Sharp, uh, or Justice Sharp, is that she was an avowed racist. She spoke publicly about her perspectives on segregation, believed that it should persist. And yet, when she sat on the bench and rendered her decisions, she put those personal perspectives aside. Um, and in fact, uh, ruled um, quite famously in a case that ended desegregation, or ended segregation um, in golf courses. Uh, in North Carolina. And so I think it's important to keep in mind that while a president might think that a particular nominee to the court is going to hold certain perspectives, I think ultimately it's, it's really, um, you know, we can speculate um, a lot, but it's really hard to know um, what will happen when they become one voice on a court of nine um, and what their ultimate um, position will be on different cases. So my question to both of you, we're going to, we're stretching the segment out a little bit. So we're going to do three segments today because this is so, so fascinating. My question is in writing this book and, and, you know, when explaining um, what women have been through the, through the stages and, uh, and some just have had to battle tokenism and stereotypes and childlessness and motherhood. What is it that you hope your book will do? I mean, in the message that you portray, what is your hope for the future in this, is my question. Well, I think well, the I book think that, gives... Oh, go ahead. 
I was just well. We, we can both comment because I'm sure we both have different um, <laughs> uh, different ways to respond to the question. Um, you know, the women in the book, especially those who were coming into their professional careers, you know, in the in the 30s, and the 40s, and the 50s, they met very explicit barriers and obstacles to their advancement. They were told, mm-hmm. "If only you were a man, we would hire you." They were mm-hmm. met with closed doors when they went to law firms and even applied to some law schools. They couldn't get in because of their sex. But what we know today is that sexism, discrimination, bias, it's much more subtle. It's implicit. Yes. It's difficult sometimes to see, um, to name, to touch, to identify, but yet it persists. And so by telling the stories, not just of this explicit discrimination that happened historically, um, but also by translating it into a more modern context, we think that by identifying it, talking about it, um, will help us ultimately transcend it. Mm. Uh, and I would okay. just add to that in terms of what we hope that the book will do. Um, you know, I, my hope is that this book helps advance the conversation beyond what should women and minorities do if they want to pursue positions of leadership and power to get ahead? You know, often there's advice like women need to lean in or women need to dress a certain way or women need to mm-hmm. speak a certain way. And um, what, what we have found is that all of that is not enough. And taxing women and minorities further with all the things that we're supposed to do is actually, can be an additional impediment to obtaining the very positions that we're trying to to have more women and minorities elevated into, whether it's the Supreme Court or any sort of position of leadership and power. And one of the big lessons from this book and a lesson for us as we did this research was to think very deeply about structural and systemic reforms that can occur that don't place additional burdens on the individuals that we are trying to help when we're thinking about increasing diversity. So just one example of that. One of the women profiled in our book, her name is Soya Menchikoff. She was the first female law professor at Harvard Law School, at the University of Chicago, the first female dean at the University of Miami's Law School, among her many other firsts. She was the first president of an association that all law schools belong to. It's a professional association called the Association of American Law Schools. And like, like most professional bodies, has an annual conference every year where all of the law professors would go. And it's an opportunity for networking and mentoring and to mm. maybe uh, apply for a new job and that sort of thing. And she was noticing that women were not attending this annual meeting and she couldn't understand why. She herself was not uh, outwardly a feminist. She didn't campaign in her public life for feminist causes, but she noticed that her her female colleagues weren't attending this important professional meeting. And when she asked them, they said, well, it was about the timing. The, The meeting was being held the day after Christmas through the New Year's holiday, and the men actually would kind of joke about how they liked that timing because it would get them out of the house when they were cooped right. up with kids and family and all that, right? But for women who are primarily caregivers, it was really hard to go to that meeting. So, mm-hmm. so she, she switched the meeting yeah. time, something very yeah. simple that doesn't even seem like a, a major feminist gesture or move. But by switching that meeting time, women were able to attend. And in fact, Hannah and I were able to attend it when we had very young children. We have not only have we written a book together, but we've raised toddlers who are now teenagers mm-hmm, together. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm, one of, mm-hmm. in, in one of those in one of those meetings, we we won a writing competition, and our work was honored. And it was back, in fact mm-hmm. that media study that Hannah was mentioning in the beginning. And so we were a beneficiary mm-hmm. of that change. So mm-hmm. so I hope from so this you book can thank that, her. <laughs> well, yes, and I and I hope from this book that readers, men and women alike, will think about well, what small changes can I make that would Mm -hmm. actually help equalize the playing field for those in my field? All right. Now, on that note, we're going to take a break. My guests today are Renee Nake Jefferson, who holds the Joanne and Larry Doherty Chair in Legal Ethics and is a professor of law at the University of Houston Law Center. And with her, 
who's the co-author of this book, Shortlisted, Women in the Shadows of the Supreme Court. The co-author is Hannah Brenner Johnson, and she's Vice Dean for Academic and Student Affairs and Associate Professor of Law at California Western School of Law in San Diego. We're talking about the book, Shortlisted, Women in the Shadows of the Supreme Court. We'll come back and talk more right after the break. This is the Patricia Raskin Show right here on voiceamerica.com. America's Voice will be right back. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. A brave heart is anyone with the courage to be of service to others. If you have that courage, then Bravehearts Radio with Brian Reinbold is for you. Even if you aren't yet, you'll want to still tune in to get inspired, create your own story to share, and change your life for the better. Listen to the stories of service and courage shared by amazing guests and your input, too. Listen for Brave Hearts Radio, Mondays at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Remember, doing good anywhere does good everywhere. The special needs community is made up of many individuals, from children with Down syndrome to autism and ADHD issues to those who may have suffered a brain injury. On More Than Special, host Jermaine Suford and her guests explore topics that are of interest to special needs children and adults. Our program is a forum for parents, caregivers, and experts to come together to discuss relevant topics. Listen every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Do you want to hear a show about football? How about football moms? What if we told you that was just a start? Tune in for Double Down with Garrett and Mack. Audrey Garrett and Jeracy Mack are moms to some well-known NFL players. Sure, they'll talk football and raising their kids to achieve greatness, but they'll also talk about community and world issues, motherhood, news, and lifestyle topics. Listen in every Monday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to The Patricia Raskin Show. If you wish to call into our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That number again is 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to Patricia at PatriciaRaskin.com. Now, back to The Patricia Raskin Show. Hi, everyone, and we are back. And we are talking today about extraordinary women. Absolutely extraordinary. And we're talking to Renee Nake Jefferson and Hannah Brenner Johnson. And the name of their book is Shortlisted, Women in the Shadows of the Supreme Court. And these are both award-winning scholars. And they tell the largely forgotten stories of the nine, nine extraordinary women who broke through barriers and endured routine indignities to build influential legal careers and advance the ranks of women in state and federal courts, culminating with their name on a presidential list, even if it was just for the appearance of diversity, but they were there. And let me tell you a little bit about both of both of our co-authors. Renee Nake Jefferson holds the Joanne and Larry Doherty Chair in Legal Ethics. She's a professor of law at the University of Houston Law Center, And our co-author, Hannah Brenner-Johnson, is the Vice Dean for Academic and Student Affairs, as well as the Associate Professor of Law at California Western School of Law in San Diego. So uh, it's a fascinating book, fascinating take on women. So welcome, welcome back to both of you, Hannah and Renee. All right. So, you know, I I, I am going to ask something that I'm curious about. When you look at these nine women... And then, you know, then you add women that we know, like Ruth, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the women who've been on the Supreme Court recently. What makes them special? Is it, are, it's at all, is it all different characteristics or do they all have something in common? Do they all have just an amazing drive to succeed? What do you think? 
Well, I will say one thing that all of the women in our shortlisted studies, so there are nine of them going back to the 1930s up until 1981 when Sandra Day O'Connor became the first female Supreme Court justice. And I would include um, Justice Ginsburg in, in this as well. So she goes on to the U.S. Supreme Court in 1993, but she actually became a federal judge in 1980. Um, and I can say a little bit more about that in a second. But to, to answer your question about what they all shared in common, they all really wanted to contribute in professional life in a meaningful way. And when they were, you know, each one, we've, we've read the oral histories of these women, we've read interviews they've given, and all of them reflected on aspects of their childhood and how they were sort of looking at the world. Some of them wanted lives very different than what they had seen their mothers and, and their fathers in some cases living, but they all wanted to contribute to professional life. And Many of them were then counseled by their mentors to go into teaching, which was sort of a traditionally, you know, female-appropriate career, especially 30s, 40s, 50s. And not not knocking teaching at all. I'm I'm a professor. I think that teaching is a wonderful uh, way to spend one's career. But instead of becoming teachers, uh, they went and pursued law degrees and became lawyers. Mm. And I. I'm often asked as a law professor, you know, what's the value of a law degree? And I would say, especially for women and minorities and anyone who has historically been excluded from professional life that is largely dominated by by men and, and, and white men in professional life, that having that law degree opens up doors and uh, puts you in the room in a way and then allows you to become a champion for the legal change that's needed to see the very equality that, um, you know, one is not just aspiring to in her career, but also trying to make the world a better place. And I think that's something that they all shared in common, even though they were all very different women. And Mm. then just in thinking about Justice Ginsburg a bit more and how she ends up in, in the federal court system, this goes to another piece of our research about strategies for how we can bring more diversity to our workplaces and professional life. And a lot of people don't remember this part of her story. We think of her as the notorious RBG, uh, and rightly so. But when she was appointed by President Carter in 1980 to the D.C. Circuit Court, she was really seen as quite a moderate. That was even true when Clinton put her on the Supreme Court as well. In fact, she was overwhelmingly confirmed to the Supreme Court in a vote of like 96 to 3, which Mm -hmm. is unheard of these days. Um, But the reason why um, Carter found her was through a process that he created, a systemic reform in how judges were appointed to the federal judiciary. He created a commission, tasked that commission with interviewing diverse candidates, women, minorities, uh, made sure the commissions themselves, the the decision makers, were diverse in makeup, and importantly, required that a commitment to diversity be a qualification for a federal judicial appointment. And that's how Sandra, or that's how Ruth Bader Ginsburg first ended up in her uh, federal court of appeals judgeship that, of course, then helped credential her when she would be elevated years later to the U.S. Supreme Court. Mm. Hannah, anything to add to that? Yes, I'll go back to something that Renee pointed out at the beginning of her response to this question, and that is, you know, they were incredibly determined women. Um, they are all so different. Their backgrounds could not be more different. Um, you know, yes, they all went to law school, but they came from different kinds of contexts. Um, many of them were told by their parents, by their teachers, that they should not pursue a career in law, mm. that they perhaps would be better suited for a more traditional career, um, you know, like a, like a teacher or a nurse or something that women more typically did. Um, but they all had this just incredible desire um, to enter professional life. Um, I love an anecdote that we talk about in the book um, about one of the women, Soya Menshikoff, um, who, when she was 12, um, just a, a pre-teenage girl, she and a girlfriend wrote down on a piece of paper what they wanted to be when they grew up, and they hid those envelopes away, and it wasn't until later years that she opened that envelope and noted that she wanted to be a lawyer um, as early mm-hmm. as age 12. And so, mm-hmm. so many of these women had ideas about what they wanted to do, and they set out, and they actually accomplished those goals. Mm, amazing. So let's go back and and certainly talk about Ruth Bader Ginsburg because uh, she recently passed in 2020, and she was really an icon. 
And uh, so many people had so many amazing things to say about this woman, not just professionally, but personally as a, as a person. Um, give us kind of your take about Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the, the tremendous contribution that she made on the Supreme Court. Well, we have to do that. You have to actually... Oh, sorry. I'll, <laughs> go ahead. I'll jump in for now and then I'll let you go. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I think to, to talk about her contribution, you can't just focus about uh, her time on the court. You actually have to look back at her time as a lawyer. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, initially she, um, you know, she was quite, quite famously not hired for a Supreme Court clerkship, although she did clerk for a lower, uh, a lower court, and then went on to both be a law professor and practice law and argued a handful of cases in front of the U.S. Supreme Court, won all but one of them. All of them were devoted in some way to equality between men and women, um, whether it was for, you know, uh, employment benefits or wages or, or, or other aspects. And her, the cases that she won in front of the U.S. Supreme Court really were foundation for women's entry into professional life in, in so many ways. And so she had an enormous impact before she ever became a member of the judiciary. And then on the Supreme Court, she's perhaps most well-known, um, especially in recent years, for her dissent. And I'll just mention one of my favorite ones, which it came from a case involving equal pay. A woman named Lily Ledbetter had worked her entire career for the Goodyear Tire Company, and she learned toward the end of her career that she'd been paid less than her male counterparts. She sued and won a very significant jury award. The U.S. Supreme Court overturned it. It was a 5-4 decision. Ginsburg was very upset with that result, and she wrote a strong dissent. She read it from the bench, which is highly unusual. And in it, she gave uh, us all some advice about what to do when we disagree with the decision that the Supreme Court makes. She said, go to Congress. And that's exactly Mm. what happened. And when President Obama came into office, the first bill that he signed into law was the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act. And in fact, Congress did exactly what Ruth Bader Ginsburg asked for in her dissent. Uh, they passed a law that would guarantee fair pay going forward. It didn't help Lily Ledbetter. She didn't get her jury verdict back. But it did help women going forward. And I think that that's a real powerful lesson. It's almost like she remained a law professor even when she was writing opinions from the bench. Hmm. Amazing. Well, Hannah, you want to you know, add to that? I'll add that although um, the notorious RBG is, of course, known for many of her dissenting opinions, she also embodied something that I think more of us should take note of, and that is um, civility. So she and Justice Scalia um, obviously famously found themselves on opposite sides of many, many cases uh, in terms of their written opinions and during oral arguments. But in real life, they were good friends. And they were able to transcend their political differences to... That was amazing um, to me. That yeah. was amazing to me because they really were so different and yet they put that aside and became good friends. It was really, I think, remarkable and special. Absolutely. Um, so both Renee and I had the opportunity, the good fortune, to hear uh, Justice Ginsburg speak in January of this last year. She mm-hmm. was the keynote speaker at this conference that we talked about, um, the Association of American Law Schools annual meeting, um, and we were in a room of... Uh, a thousand of her biggest law school professor fans. Um, but one of the things that she spoke about in that, in that talk um, relates to the influence that she thinks she had as a woman and women have generally in spaces like the court um, and other positions of leadership and power. And just having the presence of a woman on the court, you know, she talked about the, the evolution that she watched in some of her male colleagues um, mm-hmm. as um, as they were rendering their decisions and thinking about, um, you know, they started thinking about gender in a different way um, based on the experiences of the female justices on the court. And so having women in these positions really does matter. Yeah, really does. Yeah, yeah and I, I, in, our, in our last segment, I really want to focus on um, how ambitious women across professions and industries can avoid being shortlisted. And, you know, your recommendations for more women getting into judicial appointments and confirmations and uh, why this is just so important for women to create and 
pursue these meaningful activities. I think it's easier now than it was then, but we still have barriers. And so that's something that I I really do want to discuss. And I want to discuss that in in the next segment. So let me just ask you, um, do you think that women judges impact the administration of justice differently in cases that involve education, equal pay, women's health and reproductive rights, sexual harassment against women, do you think that they um, that it impacts it differently? What do you think? Well, there has been a lot of research that's been done on the impact of gender on judicial decision making. It's a very um, uh, widely studied area of the law, and and most scholars come to the conclusion that in fact. Um, it doesn't matter in most cases, um, with the exception of sex discrimination cases. So I think it's important um, to note that just because someone is a woman doesn't mean, first of all, that they represent the views of all women. Um, and it also doesn't necessarily mean that they have feminist viewpoints. And so part of our argument for having more women on the Supreme Court and all courts and in all professional contexts, is to basically get to the place that that men have effectively enjoyed throughout history. Um, you know, when you think about the fact that less than 4% of Supreme Court justices have been women over the course of our nation's history, that means mm-hmm. that, um, you know, a whopping 96% of those um, positions were held by men who represent a, a myriad of viewpoints and perspectives. Um, and so I think once we get to a point of having a more critical mass of women, um, I mean, that's ultimately the place that we want that we want to end up. All right. We're going to take a uh, break on that note. And then when we come back, we are really going to talk about opportunities for women and, you know, what your suggestions are to women today and how we can try to prevent from being shortlisted. So you're listening to the Patricia Raskin Positive Living Program right here on voiceamerica.com, America's Voice. We're talking to Renee Nake Jefferson and Hannah Brenner Johnson, who were co-authors of the brand new book, Shortlisted, Women in the Shadows of the Supreme Court. And both women are attorneys, and Renee Nake Jefferson holds the Joanne and Larry Doherty Chair in Legal Ethics, and she's a professor of law at the University of Houston Law Center. And Hannah Brenner Johnson is the Vice Dean for Academic and Student Affairs and Associate Professor of Law at California Western School of Law in San Diego. Stay tuned, folks. I'm Patricia Raskin. We will be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Want an insider's pass to everything that goes on in Hollywood? Join Summer Helene every week for Behind the Scenes. Summer Helene is known as the Duchess of Hollywood because she knows the insiders, legends, and celebs and brings the stories, the gossip, and the backstage scoop. It's the real Hollywood, though. So this program is for adults only. Behind the Scenes can be heard live every Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. On Read My Lips Radio, producer and host, a.k.a. Radio Red, invites you to eavesdrop on her live, unscripted conversations with smart, savvy, creative people as she discovers what makes them tick, where they find their inspiration, when creativity first became their passion, and how their creative process can inspire the rest of us to think out of the box. Enjoy, a.k.a. Radio Red's always lively, cool conversations with creatives. Mondays at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Oh, how those lips can talk. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. You are listening to The Patricia Raskin Show. If you wish to call into our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That number again is 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to Patricia at PatriciaRaskin.com. Now, back to The Patricia Raskin Show. Hi, everyone, and we are back. We are back talking about the book shortlisted, Women in the Shadows of the Supreme Court by Renee Naik Jefferson and Hannah Brenner Johnson. And Renee Naik Jefferson holds the Joanne and Larry Doherty Chair on Legal Ethics and is Professor of Law at the University of Houston Law Center. And Hannah Brenner Johnson is Vice Dean for Academic and Student Affairs and Associate Professor of Law at California Western School of Law in San Diego. So what I'd like to talk about in the last, in our last segment is really how can ambitious women across professions avoid being shortlisted? What are some of the recommendations that you have for women and how can we keep making a difference? All right. And also how far have we come? And we've come far. All right, Hannah, you want to start? Sure. Well, I think we definitely have, um, we've, we have come far and I think we have to recognize the progress that has been made. When you think about the very first woman that we write about in the book, Florence Allen, who was shortlisted for the Supreme Court by three presidents, uh, uh, Hoover, Roosevelt, and Truman. I mean, women were not, women were not judges. Um, they certainly had not sat on the nation's highest court. Um, in many cases, they weren't even allowed to go to law school, um, depending on the institution. And so we have come far from the day that those doors were closed to them and that the, the discrimination was explicit. Um, you know, there was another woman in our study, um, Amalia Kearse, um, who is now a judge on the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, when she got out of law school and went to Wall Street to look for a job, um, she recalls a particular law firm partner saying to her, you know, well, if only you were a man, um, I would love to hire you. So mm. we're not we're not in that place anymore. So so we should definitely um, acknowledge that. Um, but there is still a lot of work to be done because a lot of the the, the bias that exists is implicit. Um, it is not so um, easy to see and identify, and um, it's also not actionable. Um, it's not always governed by um, our employment laws. Um, and you asked the question of what, what women can do, and certainly there are strategies that women can employ to, um, to navigate their careers, um, but ultimately the changes that have to occur are systemic. Um, they're things that, um, right. that really are going to require structural shifts and we've talked about some of those um, already. Uh, Renee, what, what are some of the, the suggestions that you have? Well, so with respect to this, the systemic changes and structural shifts, they can come, as, as we've already said earlier in the show, through the, you know, thinking, being mindful about the timing of a meeting to make sure that uh, women and men alike can attend no matter their caregiving responsibilities, or to think about um, not just valuing diversity for the appearance of it, whether you have some diverse candidates on your short list or your marketing brochure features the diverse people who happen to work at your workplace, but really making a, a demonstrated commitment to diversity, equality, equity, and inclusion as a, as a qualification for holding a position mm-hmm. of leadership and power. Yeah. Those are things that everyone can do, not just women. But I'll also give you an example. Um, you know, one thing that we discovered through this research and sort of we were personally really seeking in our own professional lives was something besides what, what we as women needed to do more of, whether it was dress a certain way or speak a certain way or lean in or not lean in. And, um, and one example I can give you uh, of things that women can do that, that doesn't necessarily impose that same kind of burden is an example from one of the women in our study, Joan Dempsey-Klein, a judge from California. Now, she was shortlisted the same time Sandra Day O'Connor was, when Reagan appointed O'Connor in 1981. He had a shortlist with a handful of women on it, it all women on the shortlist. I mean, that's one way to make sure that a woman's selected if you have only women on the shortlist, right? Um, and Judge Klein uh, was not selected, obviously, to be the first woman on the Supreme Court. She would remain a judge in California. Uh, and I have to imagine that the news of learning that she had come so very close and had to go through 
the scrutiny and answer all the questions and then not to be the one chosen that had, she had to have experienced a range, a range of emotions and that undoubtedly that included major disappointment. And yet she channeled whatever she was feeling and that energy and she used it to do what Hannah and I uh, describe as collaborating to compete. And one of the things that we um, suggest at the end of this book, we have a whole list of the kinds of strategies we've been talking about now. We don't have time to get into all of them, but this idea of collaborating to compete, women coming together, not to take on more or do more in order to attain a position of leadership or power, but to champion one another for it. And Joan Dempsey Klein testified before the Senate at Sandra Day O'Connor's confirmation hearings on her behalf, uh, recommending her highly, without any reservation, for the very seat that uh, she undoubtedly wanted to be holding, um, but championed her sister-in-law uh, in, in order to see a woman hold it. And we found that story to be very inspiring um, amongst mm-hmm. many of the gems from our what, research. What do you say to women who would really love to enter politics, but they don't because they feel there's too much, um, there's just too much uh, con- contention and backstabbing and, and meanness and uh, all of that. Um, what do you say to those women who really have something to contribute but are afraid? Well, that's tough. Um, you know, I think that there are a lot of ways that women can contribute. And for some, that means being the front runner. That means being the candidate. Um, that means being the Supreme Court justice. But there are also a, a lot of ways to contribute that, that don't involve being um, front and center and doing work behind the scenes can be, um, can be just as important. So, you know, I guess I encourage women who have those ambitions um, to to forge ahead um, and take advantage, uh, you know, of the opportunities, even though it can be, um, you know, as you describe, a very unpleasant, um, unpleasant world. Um, but I think once we get more women into these positions, um, it, it perhaps will appeal to even more women to throw their hat in the ring. Um, we were talking during the break about Madeleine Albright, and when I think about her, um, former Secretary of State, I think um, always about something that she um, referenced when asked about whether she had always wanted to be the Secretary of State. And her response was that it hadn't really occurred to her because she had never seen one wearing a skirt, right? So she didn't see role models um, representing possibilities um, to do that kind of work. And certainly when um, when I was a, a young girl coming of age, I was captivated um, by Geraldine Ferraro, who was running for vice president um, with mm-hmm. Walter Mondale, because I had never seen a woman in a position of leadership like that. And so um, I guess I say to women, you know, if, if, it, if, if, if the calling is there, um, you know, encourage, we certainly encourage them to take advantage um, of the opportunity and put themselves out there. I think the world is a better place for it. Uh, yeah, and it's easier to do that today than it was 20 years ago. Would you agree with that for women? Oh, I, I think that's a I tough do. one. I mean, it, really? it, is, really? it, it is easier. <laughs> well, it's, it's easier in terms of, um, you know, the, the formal barriers, you know, like, sorry, we don't have a bathroom here, so you, you can't work in this building. Right. But um, I, I think that it's still, it's very difficult for a woman to run for office or put herself out in public and political life because in addition to being scrutinized for her professional qualifications, she will inevitably be scrutinized for how she appears or doesn't appear, who she appears with or who isn't with her, and and how she uses her time in her personal life, whether she is a mother and then who's raising her children, or she hasn't chosen to have children, and then, you know, is she not enough of a woman to really be representative? And, and I, I think those kinds of additional inquiries and impositions aren't put on, on men. And so I think it's a different kind of hard, um, but it, it is still a, a, a difficult thing for women to enter um, a, not just professional life, but especially those very highly public roles in professional life. Mm-hmm. All right. We're going to close soon. So um, I'll start again with Hannah and then Renee. Um, what's the message of your book? What do you want to leave our listeners with today, both men and women? Hannah, we'll start with you. Well, there are so many messages to take away from the book, but 
I think one of them is to just, um, you know, make it, make these stories known. Um, all of these women are women that we should all know. And yet, when Renee and I embarked on this study, we had never heard of them individually or collectively. There is an incredible collective story that we're telling through this book um, that there are women, and it's not just in law and not just women who've been shortlisted for the Supreme Court, but for all professions. Um, and so there is, you know, there are so many women in the world who are qualified um, for any number um, of roles in their professional lives. And this book just tells the story of, of nine of them. Um, we hope that it will inspire um, other stories to follow. Wonderful. Uh, Renee? Well, I would say related to that, the, the message of this book, um, you know, the, the title is a bit cynical, right? The shortlisted and women in the shadows of the Supreme Court um, might come off as a, um, a, a bit of a critique. And it is, it, it is meant to be a critique of the shortlisting process when it means uh, that women are used as sort of, um, you know, put, put out for giving a publicly facing commitment to diversity while meanwhile preserving the status quo. But that's not the, the heart of, of the book and, and not the ultimate takeaway. I, my hope is that by pushing back a little bit and critiquing some things like the use of a shortlist in this way, that we actually illuminate a path forward for men and for women who care about opportunities right now for um, women and minorities and for the next generation who is, is coming up along next. When I left high school, the year was 1992, the year of the woman, and uh, I felt like the world was full of so much promise. And that was true, but there was so much work left to be done. And one of the messages of, of this book is, again, reminding us of that history, but also illuminating sort of the, the next Step and things that, that we need to do to make sure that we're leaving this world a place that's um, more reflective of the public we serve. Okay. All right. We only have a minute left, so let me just ask. There is a special day today, which today is October 5th, 2020. So what's the special day you want to tell us about quickly? Oh, it is the first Monday, which is the opening day of the U.S. Supreme Court sitting for its 2020 term. And so that makes it an especially appropriate time to be thinking about who sits on our Supreme Court. All right. All right, everyone. Thank you so much, Hannah and Renee. It was wonderful to have you on the program. I want to thank you both, really. Um, Thank you so much for having us. You're welcome. Stay on the line for a minute. All right, folks, that wraps up this edition of the Patricia Raskin Positive Living Show. Uh, You can find me, Patricia, at patriciaraskin.com if you'd like to be on my mailing list so you can see all the wonderful guests we have on every month. Or uh, if if you would like to like me on Facebook, it's Patricia Raskin, Raskin Resources. And if you find that you're thinking of doing your own podcast, contact me because that's what I do. I help people create their own shows and get their wonderful positive messages out. All right, folks, remember, stay healthy, stay happy, get the support you need and know you can make your dreams come true. Until next time, I'm Patricia Raskin. Bye for now. Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of the Patricia Raskin Show. Be sure to join Patricia Raskin and another amazing guest next Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have an outstanding week.